0: Hello and welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast. This is Ian Brannan. As ever, I'm joined by Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And together we'll have a look at one or two things making the news from the universe, including the brightest object ever observed. We'll tell you about that and just how big it is in just a couple of moments' time. We're also joined by not one, but two CEOs. A change at the top on the way for Keeldra Observatory will speak to outgoing CEO Catherine Johns who's been with the organisation since 2019 and incoming CEO Lee Venus and both will explain why the job is so special.
1: The chances of, of this galaxy existing of this solar system existing, of this planet existing are so infinitesimally small but we do exist and therefore if we do exist there is a life to be lived and I think that's the closest I can get to putting into words the sense of wonder and connection that people feel when they look at a dark sky.
2: I've always been compelled by the life-changing experiences that we can we can give people. To be able to take on an iconic venue like Kielder Observatory, to be able to deliver that and to have the whole universe at my disposal to, to do that and to give people that experience was just too good an opportunity to pass up.
0: We'll hear from both Lee and Catherine in the next part of the Kielder Observatory podcast, but first... We're going to uh, spend a bit of time in the company of Director of Astronomy at Kielder, Dan Pai, to uh, have a look at what's going on in the night sky, the stuff that you can see, uh, things you need to look out for, and uh, also some, some news from the world of space, because there has been one or two little discoveries and missions that we might want to talk about, uh, starting with the discovery. It's not really a discovery, but um, it, is, it is a big thing that they found in space, possibly one of the biggest things that's ever been discovered. People love stories of black holes, right? They're fascinating things, um, and and this this is a bit of a monster. I don't know if you've heard about this, Dan. It's the uh, Quasar J0529-4351, which is a catchy title, but basically it is the brightest thing that they've ever found deep in space. It is a black hole, and it's the most luminous object ever observed. Now, they've known about this for quite some time, um, but uh, finally... Somebody has managed to uh, discover exactly where it is, and uh, this is a very hungry black hole, the, the hungriest black hole of all, in fact. It's uh, eating the equivalent of a sun every single day. It's basically eating a star. A star a day keeps the astronomer away, uh, and um, this is a very hungry thing indeed. And as I say, it's a, it's, it's, it's a supermassive black hole, and it has quite an appetite, Dan.
3: It's mm, quite a healthy appetite. Can I just say, by the way, we've suddenly turned into Doctor Who here at the observatory, what with two... To uh, what's this? A bi-generation of CEOs or something like that? Have we got, that? Yeah,
0: but yeah, regenerating. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they go into the observatory. The door
3: closes. The building shakes, and out comes <laughs> yeah, a new we've one. Got two two CEOs at once. It's definitely like an episode of Doctor Who. Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so there's a big black hole, which is very very hungry, eating eating a star a day. That's quite a healthy appetite, I would say, for a black hole. And they're really interesting. the black holes in this scale, uh, at these massive distances they become really abstract and difficult to, uh, um, I guess, think about what it might look like and how this functions and... With the great many things in space, this is all supported by a good bit of maths. <laughs> so, this uh, this mm. particular black hole, though, <laughs> is, is quite big. It's not the biggest one that we've seen. It's about seventeen billion times larger than the sun, or seventeen billion times more massive than the sun, which is which is very, very large. Imagine seventeen billion suns being compressed into this little tiny, infinite, collapsing blob, and uh, and that's, that's that's that black hole there. Um, so yeah, that's quite uh, quite an impressive uh, appetite that it has, which is quite interesting actually, because if it's 11 billion light years away, which is what's suggested in this in this, uh, in this article here. Um, those stars have formed very, very early. So I'm wondering, can we find out more about those stars that are being hoovered up by this black hole? And um, and will that reveal any more details about those early formations of, of stars in the early universe? Because we still are a little bit unclear as to what happened during that initial stage of stellar formation all that time ago uh, when, the, when the universe started to become um, more transparent or when it was large enough uh, or far enough apart from each other that that these things started to form. We're still a little bit unclear as to how that that formation uh, got started. So maybe it'll also include some information about how that happened and how that black hole got there in the first place as well, because would it have formed from... See, I like a, a, a very simplistic theory, which I'm not sure is backed up by any astrophysics, because, of course... I'm not an astrophysicist, but in my mind, the, um, the kind of structural uh, progression of the universe goes in my mind as, um, or the universe was really close to each other, and then everything started to get further away. And then as it got a bit further away and light started to travel through the universe, there was little pockets of it which were still a bit too close. And this is where those big stars would have started to form, those very first stars, massive, massive big stars, that then became these supermassive black holes. And then all of the galaxies um, formed around these supermassive black holes, as we see them now, as as, as quasars we call them, um, which are these feeding black holes like this one here um so yeah i think uh, i'm not sure if i reached any conclusion in that little ramble that that happened just there but
0: yeah i don't think we can really comprehend the sheer size of this black hole 17 billion times the size of the sun i mean for us i mean in in equivalent terms i don't know that must be pretty much almost the size of the milky way i would have thought that's that's a big old object
3: yeah, seventeen billion times larger than our sun. So this this is a this is a mega-sized thing. The biggest thing in the universe, um, or the biggest black hole in the universe, is a lot bigger than that. Though we think uh, about sixty-six billion. Uh, masses of of the sun. So really, 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 really unimaginably huge thing. Um, But remember, these things are just mass. Um, So they're they're not necessarily 16 billion, 66 billion times the size of our sun, just the, the mass of our sun. And we were actually doing a a little experiment yesterday in the observatory because a kid had had asked this uh, question about, well, how far would you be away from the sun if the sun was a black hole to get spaghettified? Um, So I did a a quick little bit of uh, arithmetic, we did, um, using uh, the good old um internet as a support engine for that and um we we came to the conclusion that the sun if if to be a black hole the sun would be uh, about 3 kilometers in size um so the event horizon would be 3 kilometers in diameter um so you'd get three kilometers away from this theoretical infinite collapse center and that's when you'd start to be spaghettified bearing in mind the sun is a million miles wide right now so (laughs) you'd have to really really shrink all of that mass down to three kilometers or less than three kilometers to make that that a black hole Hmm.
0: yeah i think it would be by the time you got three kilometers away it would it would um still be quite hot first i think that would be maybe your first issue would it
3: yeah i guess it would be yeah so when we get close to that black hole we've got all of this accelerated material which is spinning around it in this region we call the ergosphere which word i really quite like actually ergosphere Um, and things can actually increase in energy when you introduce them to this to this region as well um so yeah very hot um very luminous as well things can start to glow very brightly this one that's just been discovered, 500 trillion times the luminosity of our sun, 500 trillion times brighter than the sun. Imagine the the amount of sunglasses you'd have to wear to look at that
0: yeah you'd need all the shades from that guy on the beach that sells them uh, all, all at once or indeed a welder's mask um, something else that's been taking place and people may have seen this or not <laughs> the uh, the Odysseus mission to uh, put a lander on the moon the first time the United States have been involved in something like this since uh, the 1970s of course now it did hit a bit of a snag it, uh, it tripped over it's on its side they reckon but it is at the intended landing site and also Japan's moon lander as well as apparently come back to life so quite a lot of activity uh, on the moon again
3: yeah that's right and that's a really good useful commodity is, is stuff like that for us getting deeper into the solar system being able to um, utilize some of this material as uh, potential fuel to get us a little bit further away because we use so much fuel when we leave our planet that if we could do that in a lower gravity environment to get into these deeper regions of our solar system it would just be a much more efficient way of being able to do that and uh, um, because i mean if you look at things like um, the apollo mission that was using the equivalent of uh, a a transatlantic flight per second in fuel as it was (laughs) as it was taken off from from the floor there so it's it's an incredible amount of fuel that we go through so if we can create our own fuel by using the resources of the moon then that's a, a a useful thing and of course this was Really useful for us assessing um, um, the, the the future uh, Artemis missions as well, and and landing on the moon for those missions that so we send actual people back to the moon for constructing lunar bases. So all of this kind of stuff is is now part of well, it's part of now instead of the future. The future is happening as we kind of see it, and this is this is really much a, a starting point to that. But also just a just a thing on water. Um, we kind of, I, I get asked this quite a lot at the moment, and and I don't know if it's because of the conversations that are happening about the moon and looking for water around the poles and H two O, and and it seems to be a, a misconception that water is a rare commodity in the universe, when actually, really isn't. There's there's water in a lot of places. There's water um, in molecular clouds. There's um, water in our solar system, in various different parts of our solar system. There's slight chemical differences with some of the water. Um, and one really interesting thing that came about recently from a very uh, a, a recent piece of research looking at um, uh, material from asteroids and and grains of dirt in space and thinking about how Earth was populated with the water that we have today Um was that the, the 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 theory around delivery of water via comet ice to Earth is not really a a preferred theory anymore because a lot of comets when we look at them they have this uh, this heavier version of water as we may call it heavy water which contains deuterium as opposed to um, just some 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 basic H two O. Um, in which case um, if we have our planet populated with heavy water why have we got the water that we have today and recently there was some uh, research done on tiny little granules of dirt from from uh, space rock and they all had this tiny 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 little film of of water on the surface and the theory goes that because a lot of this rock contains uh, oxygen attached to something else, that the the um, the hydrogen nuclei from the sun that's been ejected and travelled travelling out through the solar system on the on the stellar wind or the solar wind um, hits the oxygen uh, that's attached to whatever it might be in 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 these dust grains, and it attaches itself to the oxygen, um, releasing the oxygen from whatever else it was attached to. So you end up with water being created by solar wind <laughs> on, on little bits of dust and rock in our solar system. And we think asteroids are covered with this film of, uh, of, of H2O on their surface as a result of this, something which the, the solar wind is creating, which I, f- I find absolutely incredible uh, that that's taking place, even still today, uh, and being delivered here today.
0: Well, wow, that's um, is incredible. And something else, actually, the you know the James Webb Space Telescope is something that we've talked about many times enough because it's always doing work and always having research um, carried out via it. Um, they've um, just released something, I think, in the last day or two about Supernova nineteen eighty seven A, which was um, relatively recent, really, an exploding star in the cosmos and and relatively close, only one hundred and sixty eight thousand light years away. So just a hop and a skip, really, in uh, in intergalactic terms. Um, But um, a star, um, largest satellite galaxy of the Milky Way, uh, a star exploded. Um, This happened when the star's core collapsed into a dense object and expelled all of the outer gas. And there's been a few mysteries about maybe what caused that. And the James Webb Space Telescope, using um, you know the infrared capabilities and a, a little bit of uh, reenactment, uh, of course, as well, have uh, published a study in Science Magazine uh, describing how astronomers uh, have worked out and, and peered behind the dust cloud that still remains where the star once was. And they found there a neutron star, uh, a dense ball of matter about the size of a City, but uh, containing the mass of one or two times that of the Sun. So uh, they've they've found this neutron star hiding behind it, and that's maybe uh, given them a, a little bit of something to think about.
3: That's amazing. I love a neutron star. They're always a fun thing. They spin fast sometimes. I wonder what it's... Uh... Or how far how quickly it's spinning. I wonder if they know that yet. Um I haven't read this yet. In fact, actually the, of today of recording this, um tomorrow, <laughs> today, tomorrow, <laughs> is um is is the anniversary of this supernova um erupting in nineteen eighty seven. So it was twenty-fourth of, of February nineteen eighty-seven that this this went bang. Um did this supernova. But yeah, great that there, there's a, a little neutron star there. That's nice. Um yeah, good. I, I, neutron stars are, 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 are very dense things. Uh, my my favourite facts about a neutron star, um, and this one may be in, in a similar kind of ilk, is if you take a, a teaspoon of neutron star and you brought it back to Earth, it would weigh not only 10 million tonnes, but it would just shoot through the floor and it would just keep going backwards and forwards through the planet, making a hole in the planet, which I think is quite a nice ill. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> bad news if you're
0: in Australia if we dropped it here. Got <laughs> <laughs> like a scene from uh, what do you call it like um Road Runner or something like that where Wiley Coyote throws the uh, the anvil off a cliff and it just keeps going through the earth it's something like that. Um okay let's have a look at what the highlights are in the night sky as we head in towards March then um because spring is around the corner and um that brings yeah, it brings a few things, doesn't it? it brings slightly lighter uh, evenings, but still dark and dark nights. Um, you know, later on into the into the evening. Um, but uh, we see the the spring triangle. In fact, you might already be able to see it.
3: Yeah, well, the spring triangle, which is the spring triangle. Is this something new?
0: The spring triangle: three bright stars from three separate constellations, all possible to view. Arcturus in Bootes. Uh, is it Spica in Virgo? Mm-hmm. And uh, Denny Bola in Leo. Those are. um, Really? Those are the spring triangle.
3: I, I've never heard of the Spring Triangle. I know about the, the the Winter Triangle and the Summer Triangle, but the Spring Triangle, so, and you want to meet. there's a nice stars as well. The uh, Arcturus is a lovely red star, and um, Denebola is quite a nice star, and, um, and yes, yeah, Spica is quite a nice star, and I always love it when Spica comes back because that means that the bowl of Virgo is going to start to become visible, and you know what that means? It's the return of the hairy eyebrow galaxy. Oh yes. Oh, oh,
0: yes. <laughs> well, regular regular listeners will be familiar with the hairy eyebrow galaxy, so it's uh, it's, yes. it's good to bring it back. Great. <laughs> there we go. Um other things going on Juno is that as a opposition, that might be sort of a bit of a, a trickier one to uh, to see maybe for the uh, for the for the advanced.
3: Yeah, I wouldn't be trying to spot that one. Yeah, that one's going to be a hard one. Uh, Mercury is at its greatest eastern elongation, though, which means you're going to be able to see it at its furthest distance from the sun. Um, and this is going to be in the evening sky. So just before the sun sets in the western uh, uh, western direction, westerly direction, uh, just after the sun sets, sorry, um, for a little period of time, you'll see uh, Mercury over on the horizon. And it can actually be quite bright, can Mercury. Um, It's good. It's lovely to see uh, lovely to see with a telescope as well. If you can get a telescope on it, of course, make sure the sun has set first because you don't want that stuff in your eye because it hurts. Um, But yes, Mercury, (laughs) Mercury is uh, a nice, nice little planet to look at. And sometimes it's um, crescented as well, because of course, it's an inferior planet. It's further closer, closer towards the sun. Um, And so you get different shapes, Mercury. Uh, Sometimes it's a disk and then sometimes it's a little crescent just like the moon. So
0: and uh, if you want your best chance of of doing stargazing, of course, well the uh, the new moon is the eleventh of March um, for your for your diaries. Full moon on the twenty fifth of March. So uh, good 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 times to see it, and uh, and and uh, not so good, I suppose, if the moon. But the moon's at its fullest at seven o'clock in the morning, though, so it's not going to be full blazing, perhaps, depending. But um, still, the end of the month is when the moon's going to be its brightest, and uh, around the tenth or the eleventh. And um, should be um clearer skies all being well, and maybe we might start um uh, we're, we're sort of heading into with the equinoxes uh, p- possibility of a aurora conditions coming good again.
3: Yes, of course, all very excited this year for return of aurora equinox time, <laughs> That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The equinox is a good time to see the aurora, that's what I mean <laughs> um and <laughs> um, as we get towards the equinox, we do see an increase in activity, and at this time uh, this year where where we we pretty much are in our solar solar maximum now. I'm not 100% sure if it's been declared as that but we we're, we're pretty much there I think. And so therefore uh yes more chance of stronger auroras that can get all the way down to us here in the northeast. Um but a great time to also go to places like Finland and Norway and Iceland and places like that which our director of astrophotography is going to uh, at the beginning of March. He he's travelling travelling to Iceland uh, with hopes and dreams of imaging some incredible aurora from there, which I'm sure we'll share on our social media pages. Uh, should he be successful, of course, Iceland is quite a cloudy country, but he's there with some people who know the island well, and if there are some. Potential clear patches. They'll be chasing the, around the island, up volcanoes, through lava pits, whatever it might cost. <laughs> Um, to try and get those those images for us so fingers crossed we get to see some of that
0: okay look out for those and of course um, heading towards Easter at the end of March as well and uh, the school holidays will be on and I guess um, good time to, to have a look and see if anything's available if people fancy coming to the observatory and booking in on any of the sessions and of course kids sessions coming up it's the time of year where there's sort of no shortage of school holidays uh, perhaps it seems where you've got you know Easter and then we've got the Spring Bank holiday coming up very quickly so those uh, those sessions for kids are also bookable now too.
3: Loads of new events coming onto the calendar as well. We're packing out the rest of the year with events up until the end of August very soon. So all of those will be listed. Um, possibly even by the time this podcast becomes available. Um, but then from September onwards, we're working on, on on that calendar as well. So there'll be plenty of events to book on the calendar, but they do book up fast, of course, around school holidays, uh, always very popular as well, uh, especially the summer holidays. We tend to, to, to really book out of those very, very quickly um so yes be aware of that and we have a new event um in which is coming up soon as well an event which we trialed last year and went incredibly well so we've decided to uh, continue to run it which is late night discovery and this will be um starting very very soon it's our latest time of night event uh, a great event to to come and take part in. Okay, so look out for details of that and get on to the website kildareobservatory.org
0: for all the info and uh, we hope to be able to see you uh, up at the
3: observatory sometime soon. Mm. And then in April we've got uh, we've got um, total eclipse and our Ellie is going to the United States with hopes and dreams of being able to photograph said eclipse so fingers crossed we also get to see some of that come, come the month after okay I'll hold that thought maybe we can talk about that in the next episode then um, so uh,
0: yeah big solar eclipse and then uh, the idea is to try and bring some of it to you as well I believe through the various channels so look out for that um, as we uh, as we head towards April exciting times at Kielder Observatory well let's hear from the, the very top table next then um Why have one CEO when you can have two? And we've got them both on the Keeldra Observatory podcast next. This is the Kielder Observatory podcast. Now, in this next section, we're going to spend some time with those at the very top of Kielder Observatory's organisation. Kielder Observatory, of course, is an operating charity uh, as well as uh, providing you with uh, fantastic nights out uh, in the wonderful surroundings of the observatory uh, out in uh, the Northumberland Dark Sky Park And we have some change to tell you about because uh, our chief executive, Catherine Johns, who's been with the organisation since 2019, is moving on to Pastures New and incoming is a new CEO by the name of Lee Venus. And uh, we're going to uh, hear from them both in the next part of this podcast. First of all, though, to you, Catherine, as you look back on your time, and of course, you faced quite a lot over that period, uh, not least uh, navigating through a pandemic, which I'm sure is something that you didn't bank on uh, having to face when you took the job. But uh, looking back, I'm sure with an immense amount of pride of the things that you've achieved and the places that you've taken Kildra Observatory during your time, and uh, what is a a very unique role and a a very unique job to to have?
1: First of all, it's a privilege to be a CEO of any organisation. And that craft of, of leadership has been something that I've been practicing my entire career. I'm probably getting quite good at it at some point in the future. Um, but I always remember that first. It, it is absolutely a privilege to lead any organization. And the role is to support the team to do their job, to delight the customers and the visitors. And I always took that view when I joined Kielder. And the team is the reason that I joined the organization. And... I remember I had my second interview up at the observatory, much like Lee did. And it was a really, really foggy night. It was like being inside a fog globe. You could barely see the hand in front of your face. And these guys and these girls were just magicians. And they inspired people in a way that I had never really seen before. And that was the moment when it really clicked for me. And I thought, if they can do that on a night like this, where you cannot see anything, What can they do when it's bright, starry, crystal clear, and you've got a sky glittering with stars? And it was a group of people that I wanted to work for and wanted to work with and wanted to lead. So whatever difficulties of the past few years, and I'm sure we can come into that in a a bit, whatever the difficulties, I never, ever stopped believing in the team. I never stopped believing in the mission. I never doubted for a minute that we would survive COVID and the pandemic and all the other challenges like Storm Arwen that we've had. I never doubted that for a minute because of the people I met on that July night for my second interview.
0: And that I think is is, is the big thing, isn't it? The, the experience as a whole. Yes, there's the wonderful stars, you can look through the telescopes, you can see amazing things, but also this educational element too, where people learn about what it is that they're seeing. If that's the aurora, they understand what it is they're seeing and why they're seeing it or to do with uh, meteor showers, for example. You know, what is a meteor? Where is it coming from? And, and this is all uh, information, and, and these are skills that they can take with them onwards to wherever they may uh, live in the world to, to look again and, and see it in their own surroundings.
1: Yeah, and, and very early on in my tenure, I realised that we were in the inspiration business, because I remember having a discussion at the board, and they were saying, are we education, or are we tourism, or are we, are we both? And I remember saying, no, we're in the inspiration business. That's what we do. We give, we create a space where people can experience moments of hope and inspiration and wonder. Um, And they take that moment with them. So the Kielder moment phrase actually emerged very early on in my, in my leadership days. And we started, and that, that phrase has actually driven so much of the outreach and engagement work that we've done in the last four and a half years, because it's, everyone should feel entitled to experience that moment. And I think the fundamental driving force behind my tenure, my leadership has been that no one should feel excluded from experiencing that Kielder moment. And when I joined, obviously the the very remoteness of Kielder, it has to be where it has to be because of the protection of the dark skies. but the very remoteness is actually a barrier to, to participation and attending. So I was really lucky to inherit a fantastic product, if you like, with the observatory. worked really well. People were doing their jobs incredibly well. As I said, they are absolute magicians at inspiring people. So I was really lucky there. And I could really focus my efforts on the outreach and the education and the engagement. So it's gone from, I would say, a, a fantastic observatory to a beacon for inspiration and engagement because we've, we've literally engaged with hundreds of thousands of students and community groups and teachers and prisoners and sanctuary seekers in the last four and a half years. And that's what I'm really proud of, I think.
0: And that Kielder moment, as you call it, as well as been on tour, maybe the weather has not been overly favourable or there's been a problem at Kielder where we've had you know, weather issues, and the observatory hasn't been able to open. The, the telescopes on nice, clear nights uh, have been out and about across the region, whether that's to Hexham or Exhibition Park or to, to Whitley Bay. I, I, Took my uh, my family there to, to Whitley Bay one evening, and there was you know there's maybe forty or fifty people in a car park queuing up to to look through the telescopes and and look at uh, the night sky. And this is that bringing that moment to people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend, and, and it shows they're interested and uh, they're able to get involved that way.
1: Yeah, and there's something very special about that moment because. I think one of the realizations that people have when they visit Kielder or they go to one of our pop-ups is how tiny we are. We're so tiny in the big scheme of things as humans. But but that that the logic to that is that the chances of, of this galaxy existing, of this solar system existing, of this planet existing of humans existing, of and of us as individuals, the chances of us existing as individuals are so infinitesimally small. But we do exist. And therefore, if we do exist, there is a life to be lived. And I think that's the closest I can get to putting into words the sense of wonder and connection that people feel when they look at a dark sky. Um, the pity is that that dark sky is, is a fundamental birthright for humans and any species on this planet, but it's being taken away by light pollution. So I think about 50 to 80% at any one point of the world's population is living under sky glow, under light pollution. So that that experience of looking into a dark sky, which is full of stars and feeling connected to the cosmos, that experience is actually being taken away from most people who live on this planet. So that's why Kilda Observatory's mission is so
0: important, and that mission now is handed on to a new CEO who uh, joins us now. And I'd like to introduce to you uh, Lee Venus, who takes over at the helm of uh, Kildre Observatory as the incoming CEO. Uh, Lee, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Keeldre Observatory. This is a, a unique job. It's not a job that comes up uh, very, very often. But you are now the new CEO of Keeldra Observatory. Uh, tell us, what attracted you to this? Because it is a, a fairly unique position. Obviously, the, the observatory itself is out there, a very remote place. You're, you're dealing with uh, the universe, which you can't say for every job description. Uh, what was it that brought you here?
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's it's just an incredible opportunity. And ironically enough, one of the the leaving gifts from a, a previous job I had was a, a ticket for Keeldra Observatory. And it was the it was it was to be my first chance to go and experience it. I'd always heard about it, I'd known about it, I'd heard very good things. And I went up there and I was privileged enough to have the the best possible version of the experience that can happen up there. The sky was a blanket of stars, it was absolutely jaw-dropping. It made me feel completely insignificant, and it was an incredible experience to hear from the team, to see through the telescopes, and just to be truly Bored by by the the cosmos and just by being up there, and then following that, I had another experience where I was completely blanketed in clouds, and I had the magicians, as Catherine calls them, give me a five star night, and it was absolutely incredible. So I've always I've always loved the place, and I really just couldn't do, turn down the opportunity to to join the organization. Um, I've spent the last. 15 or so years working in culture and heritage and I've always been kind of compelled by the life-changing experiences that we can we can give people through whatever it is so whether it's film or art or heritage whatever it is to to be able to take on an iconic venue like Yieldro Observatory to be able to deliver that and to have the whole kind of universe at my disposal to to do that and to give people that experience was just too good an opportunity to pass up, and thankfully, I've came into a fantastic organisation with a, a brilliant team. Thanks to all the great work Catherine's done over the past few years, it's just an incredible place. I'm incredibly privileged to be a custodian of it, and there's just so much potential still to be tapped
0: into. I think one of the real unique things is that there's there's no two nights alike. The the, the universe is ever moving, <laughs> the world is ever turning, uh, the weather is ever changing. Different people on different nights, different questions are asked. You've got different science communicators uh, working on a, on a particular evening, so no two evenings are ever going to be quite as identical, are they? No, absolutely not. I think
2: one of the one of the great fun things that I've been able to indulge myself in since I've came here is getting up to the observatory and just sitting there with the public and really experiencing the the offer and what what we what we do for people. And like you say, it, it changes night by night. It changes depending on what the weather's like, what's in the sky. It changes across the year, as, you, as you'll as you know, depending on what's, uh, what's what's up there at whatever time of the year it is, whatever season it is. But um, the questions are, are the great thing as well. I was in a fantastic session just before Christmas where it was uh, it was for, for children. It was one of the sessions we put on for children. And the questions there are, are the best ones. I think there's always something interesting when adults come in. I don't know if it's because it may be the first time that for many of us we've sat in a sort of almost classroomy situation and we've got a person in front of us asking us if we have any questions and I think we get a bit constrained as adults somehow we put up all these little barriers in our in our minds but children just have have none of that they absolutely have none of that and they ask the best questions and our team will always answer them as well I remember last time I was there there was this kid who was obsessed with the core temperatures of all of the planets and one of our astronomers knew the core temperatures right up to um saturn i think but he didn't know the planets beyond that so he promised this child he'd go away and research and when everyone came back in the room after using the telescopes he, he had the temperatures of these planets and that kid went away knowing that um so yeah i love it the questions are, are really compelling the kids questions are often the best and i think our our astronomers up there love it they they love a good question and they love having that chance to
0: to talk to talk to the people who've, who've spent the time to come up and see us some of the questions that public come out with are amazing. And as you say, particularly kids, you know, the kids come up with such advanced questions that I think sometimes just stump the finest astronomers. And my daughter's asked some questions about black holes and we've had the experts on this podcast and they've they've been stumped as well. And it just shows that uh, some some of the best questions can come from, from left field sometimes.
2: No, it's interesting as well what you said there about the, those people these experts not knowing the answers to the, the questions that were posed. I think there's something really interesting and inspiring that we can give to people, which is that it's, it's okay to say, I, I don't know. And that, 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 that's the beginning of science. You know, that that's where it starts and letting people know that it's, it's good. It's good to not know. That's the start of the journey. And in terms of kids, like you say, we've, we run late at night. It's not often the best time to get kids up there at midnight um, but this is why the, the work that we do outside of the observatory is really important as well. You know, uh, as I speak, we've got our astronomers in Phoenix in the middle of Newcastle City Centre. They're getting children to learn about and draw auroras. They're looking at, at and touching rocks from space and bits of the moon and bits of Mars and and all of that. So, yeah, getting children interested in astronomy is a critical part of what we do and encouraging those future astronomers as well, and working behind the scenes to create different opportunities that anyone can engage with across their life, from child to adult, to encourage them into astronomy, into professional study, whatever it may be. But um yeah, yeah, we 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 love engaging with the kids. Again, it's there's I think for me, particularly with my background, you know, you can have hard days, you can have difficult times. You've got an organisation to run, you've got to keep the lights on, you've got to keep everything moving, all of that. But there's just something incredible about seeing children engaging with the work in particular i think that just it's it's incredibly inspiring for myself and i think for for the wider team as well
0: Catherine, as you look back on your four and a half years or so uh, at keelder observatory what are the memories that you take with you as as the fondest and and your uh, proudest achievements in the time
1: oh gosh there's so many um i've loved every minute of it to be honest with you even through the challenges and because of the challenges you know we've forged a really strong team and a really strong organization so I'm always grateful for that um, I think w- my favorite moments are that night when we reopened after the pandemic and we had 16 people there because we had very because there was of social distancing in place and it was our first night reopened and the people started coming down the track towards the um, the building from the main car park and it was just like this. The astronomers were so unleashed that night, you know, because they love being in front of an audience and they had that had been denied them for years almost. So that was an amazing night. That was a really, really emotional night. Everyone was there. We got everyone up to say, we're all going to experience this together, this first night after a long time being closed. And I think there are, we forged some really strong partnerships with the North of Tyne Combined Authority the Rees Foundation, Durham University, um, the Association of Science and Discovery Centres. And and those partnerships have enabled us to do the big strategic work around reaching reaching vulnerable prisoners in HMP Northumberland, working with excluded children, working with sanctuary seekers. Um, Working with those partners has has enabled us to test out new methods of how we actually work with and co-create content and approaches to, to astronomy and science that hadn't been done before. So I'm really, I'm really proud of those things. Um, and there was an amazing picture of the astronomers went to see the West End Refugee Service in the West End of Newcastle and they did a session in their, in their hall. And just to see all of that happening and go, yeah, we, we did that. You know, We worked together and we got the money and we did that. And that is fundamentally changing lives. I'll always have that wherever I go. This Just this summer, we had a poet in residence, Dan Simpson, and he was working with the composer Will Todd and a number of other creatives like Robbie Graham and Lee Madison. And the work... Oh, and and Chad, sounds by Chad, who did the production. The, the poetry they have produced is so... Everyone who listens to it, they're in tears because it absolutely captures the essence of what Kielder is. Um... And in its larger form, not just the observatory, but the forest and the lake and the sky and the landscape and the sound and the not sound. So I thoroughly recommend everyone listens to that because that is a beautiful piece of work. Um, and that's Arts Council funded, so again, very very grateful for their work. But there's so many. I could, I could of course talk about when I saw Andromeda through a telescope or Saturn through a telescope. But the thing that matters to me, I think, most is that the team and I and the board have been on an an incredible journey and, and it's been a roller coaster and I'm grateful for every minute of it.
0: Well, thank you for everything you've done at Kielder Observatory over the time, Catherine, and, and the support for this podcast as well, not least, uh, also. Um, what, where are you heading now then? You, you're leaving the, uh, the, the tranquility of, of the universe and, and Kielder Forest behind. So uh, what's where's your next stop? <laughs>
1: yes, I'm now Executive Director for Dance City, which is a very different form of inspiration, but it is still. I am still absolutely in the inspiration business. And dance has been a passion of mine since I was a little girl. And I have been supporting many different dance companies in in the Northeast for many years. And this role came up and I was kind of humming and hawing and going, I love Kielder Observatory, but this is a really good opportunity. And eventually I went for it and I thought, yes, the the time is right for me to move on from Kielder. I I think I've done my role here and they're about ready for a new leader. So the timing worked out really well. So, but it's a very different environment. Um, Obviously, the built dance city itself is in Newcastle, it's an it's an urban centre, it's a very complex building with many, many different demands on it. And it's very different proposition. So where Kielder is all beautifully silent and peaceful and reflective and and contemplative, here, and you, you might be able to hear it in the background, here the building is always buzz with activity. So at the moment we have a musical dance theatre camp for children because it's half term, um, and we have some degree students doing some work. We have a residency for, for a professional artists going on. We've got the cafe open, we've got public classes going on, so it's a buzz with activity and very, very different forms of inspiration. But it's still that moment of connection that I'm always looking for, and I love going into the theatre here at Dance City and just being in that seat and then just you can hear the buzz of the audience and then the lights go down and then there's that that very magical moment it's almost electric when you you don't know quite what you're going to see but you'll know that you you'll probably be challenged you'll be thinking you'll be your thoughts will be provoked you'll laugh you'll be entertained you know you'll just you'll feel and that's what i love about dance and the performing arts so again it's a real privilege to be here too
0: so, Dan City is where you'll find uh, Catherine Johns, the previous CEO and incoming CEO, Lee Venus. I mean, you have the perfect name for this role, it has to be said, uh, being in charge of uh, of an astronomical uh, organisation such as this. But um, as we heard where Catherine's heading next, where, where have you been up to now?
2: Well, my, my background's a bit of a circuitous one. I, my degree is in genetics Then I've had a bit of a strange career journey that landed me in Tyneside Cinema in Newcastle in 2009. So it's the country's last surviving, still operating, purpose-built newsreel theatre. It's a heritage site as well as a first-run cinema and art space. So I came in there in 2009 after uh, they did a a major relaunch. I hung around and we did a big capital project. We got a a new gallery, um, a big bar cafe, and then following that, uh, Stayed in Culture and Heritage, but I moved into the museum's world. So I went on to reopen and relaunch what was known as Beads World in, in Jarrow. We relaunched it as Jarrow Hall back in back in 2016. Um, stayed there and looked after the direction of the site and set up a, a master plan with uh, some outsized help to define the next decade of development for the place. And then up to last year, I was working for the RNLI, so the Royal National Lifeboat Institution Looking after heritage for them across the north, so this was at museums, but also at all of the lifeboat stations. You can imagine. So, if you drew a diagonal line from Whitby down to Salcombe on the south coast, that was kind of my my, my patch was more or less all of the stuff above that. So, it was the north, but you know, if you define north as in kind of north of France, um, that that's what it was. And I was also uh, up until last year chair of Fertile Ground, so that's a contemporary dance. Company um, based in the north, ironically enough, which has its office at Dance City, where, where Catherine now is. And I'm also trustee of the Vagina Museum in London. So, an iconic kind of grassroots museum that's just got its new permanent home in, in Bethnal Green. So, I was working on that last year with the team down there. At um, it it's it's big, it's an enormous opportunity. There's so much to do. Um, and as CEO, it's everything from the, the day-to-day challenges that crop up to looking at kind of 2030 and, and beyond, you know, an eye on the future, where we've been, where we're going, all of that. Um, the core of it is that experience, that moment of inspiration, delivering that for everyone who's involved with us. So whether that's at the observatory or, or beyond, um, just getting as many people as we can, interested in astronomy, giving them the access to opportunities in science, um, getting people positioned so they can progress in astronomy as a career. We touched on that. We've already got one of the most significant um, STEM schools outreach programs in the region. So we're doing great work with schools, so looking to expand on that and continue, continue to develop it. Um, the observatory itself is an interesting one. The building, it's it's as much an art piece as it is a functioning observatory, you know, and it's coming up for being nearly 20 years old now. It's It's kind of far exceeded expectations. So it's had around 1,000-something guests in its first year, and it's now got over 15,000 annually. Um, So we're we're, we're working the building hard. So looking after the site, looking after the observatory and the other buildings on there, and getting them well-maintained and equipped for the next 10, 20 years is is a priority for me as well and again touching on everything that we've talked about so far so far getting beyond our location so we've done the work in prisons with HMP Northumberland we've recently done an event in Annick Garden which was absolutely incredible sold out almost instantly really well attended really great opportunity for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to access the observatory to to come and come and see what we do the work with the West End Refugee Service is ongoing getting out on Leeser's Park on nights where we can't get out at the observatory, and just inviting people for free to come and look through telescopes and be inspired near the heart of the city, we'll continue doing that kind of thing. And then looking further ahead at opportunities beyond the physical as well. So looking at what we do with our digital offer and looking at new technologies as well. So you know the the wave of artificial intelligence is is here. It's it's more than mapping up on our shore. So how does that impact what we do? How can it? improve what we do how can it enhance what we do so I'll be looking at that and new technologies as well you know I was completely blown away by the launch of the Apple Vision Pro recently and thinking about that as a piece of consumer tech that's going to be in nearly everyone's hands in about five years time and what can we be doing to work with an incredible piece of kit like that Um, and bigger picture going back to the dark skies you know there was this bit of research that came out I think it was in January this year, saying that any kid, any child who's born this year, by the time they reach their 18th birthday, if the sky continues to lose its darkness at the rate it is, they'll experience less than half of the stars that are now visible to them. And it's it's terrifying, really, the devastating effect of light pollution on our well-being, our mental health, our physical health, on animals, on the environment. So really working as a, a provocateur and an advocate for for, for Improvement in that area and darkening our skies and working to do that. And then beyond that, the climate crisis as well. So, playing our part in that. And I think it goes beyond just what we do on the site in terms of our operations and how we work and who we work with and how we operate and all of that. It goes back to that moment where somebody's confronted by the cosmos and the blanket of skies above them. And they really feel that insignificance and that smallness of this little bit of space dust that we all live on and the place we call home and i think when we're facing these big global challenges having as many people to feel that feeling and and take that feeling away with them is uh is a really important one for me The, the more people can really feel the preciousness of the place we call home the more we can as a organization have a chance to really affect lasting change i think
0: yeah, it's a fantastic opportunity and, and looking forward to uh, all that it brings for you as we uh, head through the this year and the years ahead. As we wrap this up then, Lee, in fact, Catherine as well, um, but starting with you, Lee, we've talked about the universe. You're called Lee Venus. Can I ask you what is your favourite object of the universe? It's
2: difficult because I've got a, a few, but the, the big one for me that links with the observatory in particular is, is Jupiter because it was the first thing that I ever saw through a telescope. I've seen it in the night sky as the kind of glowing, very bright star it appears to be. But when I was first at Kielder Observatory, the first thing I saw through the telescope was Jupiter. And I I couldn't believe it. I I couldn't tear my eyes away. It was absolutely stunning to to just see it as this thing that was just truly, really there. And i was seeing it with my own eyes. I could see the bands, the brown and white bands. I could see the four moons in this diagonal line I can still vividly remember that, so that's a, a, a big one for me. And I've, I've, I've recently, thanks to one of our astronomers, gotten introduced to the um, uh, the naked eye double star formation of Mizar and Alkar. So it's these, it's these two stars very near each other in the sky, and some people can see them as two stars and other people need help to see them whether it's through binoculars or a telescope and i'm i'm one of these people who needs help i i can't see it with my eyes which i think just means i'm getting old um but i've become obsessed with this little little uh, naked eye double so it's in it's in the big dipper and one of our astronomers introduced me to that so that's one of my favorites at the moment i'm just finding out more more about that
0: and uh, same question to you, Catherine. You you must have uh, witnessed and, and heard lots about the universe over the last four and a half years. But for we, for you, what's the what's the special part of the night sky, in your opinion?
1: Um, it's always going to be the Andromeda galaxy because it's our nearest galactic neighbour, and it's so far away; it's billions of light years away, and that the, I've seen so many people at the observatory blown away just by that fact, and just trying to grasp the scale of the universe that there are billions of galaxies and our closest one is still billions of light years away um so that's always going to be my favorite one because it actually stands for what Kilda achieves on a a nightly basis i should say is that that moment a moment of inspiration and connection
0: well, it's been fabulous talking to you both and um, wish you all the best in your your onward careers. Um, for you, Catherine, uh, now uh, departing to head to Dan City, thanks for everything you've done for, for Kielder Observatory over the last four and a half years. And to you, Lee, we'll look forward to, to hearing more of you, uh, no doubt, on this podcast over the coming uh, months and years. Thank you, Ian. Thanks, Ian. Great to speak to you and thanks to you for listening as well don't forget to keep up to date with everything that's happening at Kilder Observatory on our official website, KildaObservatory.org. all the information you need about what's happening in the night sky in any particular month anything else that we've got to share with you and of course all the details of the various events that are coming up at Kielder Observatory as well and book your place on one of those sessions and we hope to see you up at Kielder Observatory very soon uh, there's plenty available um, quite busy over the uh, Immediate few weeks at the time of releasing this for the first half of March, but there are some places left on some of the kids' events on weekends, and uh, probably need to start thinking about the various bank holidays and Easter and stuff like that at the time of releasing this at the end of February. But there are some some sessions still available over the course of Easter, and uh, as we head through the rest of the upcoming months as well, I think you can book things up to. Um, The middle of June at the moment, but uh, more events will be released imminently, so keep checking there, and we hope to see you at Kielder Observatory very soon. We'll be back with another episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast uh, in the next month, and I think we're going to shine the spotlight on the Aurora as we get to the spring equinox and maybe it could be a good aurora hunting season. So more on that topic on the way in the next episode, but we'll catch you then on the Kielder Observatory podcast. Take care. See you soon.